I'm going to begin, as this is the last Sunday in a sermon series dealing with conflict in our lives, I'm going to read you the ending of a conflict that took place between two twins, two twin brothers. It comes from Genesis chapter 33, and it begins like this. Jacob looked up and saw there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and the children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob said, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. And next Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all, came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I see? To find favor favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. Oh no, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. A grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. What you heard was a reconciliation between two brothers that had been involved in a fraternal fratricide, big time. I'm going to play like Paul Harvey used to do on the news. I'm going to give you the rest of the story that led up to that which I just read. There are two boys, twins. Esau was firstborn, Jacob was second. But Jacob wanted to be firstborn because even coming out of his mother's womb, he was grabbing onto the heel of his brother, hoping to stop him so he could get ahead of him. So right from the get-go, there was conflict in the making. The reason this was important is that back in those days, the firstborn son would be entitled to a double portion of the father's inheritance. And Jacob was on the move to get that. Well, they each grew their own way. Esau was a daddy's boy. He loved to hunt and fish, be out in the field, stay away from the house and roofs and that sort of thing. Jacob, on the other hand, was a mama's boy. He liked to be in the house and he learned how to cook. And he knew how to make stew and porridge and soups. One day Esau, his brother, came in from the field. 
and he was desperately hungry. And he said, as he looked at Jacob's soup that was being made, he said, I want a bowl of that. Jacob thinking, aha, this is my time to pull a fast one. He said, tell you what, Esau, uh, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you will give up your birthright as firstborn. Esau said, okay, and they made the exchange. When the time came for their father, who was dying and who had very bad eyesight, to give a blessing to his two boys, Esau was nowhere to be found. But Jacob was right there, put in place with the help of his mother, Rebekah, in order to deceive father into thinking Jacob was Esau. And so father Isaac gave to Jacob the birthright, the double portion that Esau should have received. When you look at this story, it's... You see two sides of the thing, don't you? You have, for example, on the one hand, Jacob has, right from the womb, tried to get ahead of his brother. Then he stole the birthright, and he stole the blessing of his father. But the word got out that Esau was very upset with the deception. So upset, he began to hold a serious grudge to the degree that he said, I want to kill my brother. So Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, it's time for you to leave. Get out of town fast. There's Uncle Laban who lives in Haran. You stay with him. Esau, on the other hand, was one who didn't care even to be around for the final blessing of his father. And who really didn't know the value of a bowl of porridge versus a double portion of a legacy. Both were kind of stupid when you think about it. Let's move on about 20 years. Jacob is in Haran with his uncle Laban, and he's prospering like crazy. He's got all kinds of herds and cattle and camels and, and, and just, he's wealthy. Not only that, he's got 12 sons and one daughter. And each of those 12 sons eventually became the chiefs of the tribes of Israel. The daughter named Dinah was a special child of his as well. Well, one night, Jacob was out there in Haran prospering. God sent a message to him. And the Hebrew word for sending the message was he accosted him. In other words, listen up, fella, this is important. He said, Jacob, you're to go back home and make things right with your brother. Jacob was stunned, but not stunned enough to know that he needed help to do what was commanded. He prayed to God, asked for help, and then he went back back to home. On his way, he was thinking, I've got to soften up my brother. I mean, he was out to kill me. So he sent ahead 
a portion of his wealth on four feet. Cows, camels, bulls, all kinds of sheep and goats, we're told. It was the night before the two of them were to meet. It was by a little stream called the Jabbok. There was a wrestling match that took place. A mysterious figure appeared and began a wrestling tussle with Jacob. Now, biblical commentators are pretty a pre-incarnate visit by Jesus Christ. He shows up in other places in the Old Testament. You know, he just wasn't lounging in a chair before Bethlehem and his birth there. He was actively involved in the history of his people. <clears throat> Get past that. And what happened is that before Jacob would finish the wrestling match with this mysterious creature, he said, I need from you a name. Give me a name. In those days, names are very important because they describe the character of the individual who was being named. Jacob's name in Hebrew meant deceiver. No wonder Jacob wanted a new name. And so the mysterious opponent gave him the name of Israel. Israel in Hebrew means God rules. What a transformation that night. The deceiver now becomes one in whom God rules. In the wrestling match, uh, Jacob did get his hip dislocated and for the rest of his life, we're told, he limped. But it was a reminder for him of the grace of God to turn his whole life around from deceiver to one in whom God rules. Well, what we have then the next morning is the two brothers come together. It was quite a ceremony. You heard about certain groups going ahead and then finally the two boys meet, they embrace, they weep. Esau calls Jacob his brother. Wow. And then Jacob bows down seven times before Esau and calls him in one of the old texts, he calls him Lord. The fraternal fracture was coming to an end. This sacred story tells us that forgiveness and reconciliation are not always easy. It may take years. It may cost a sacrifice. It may even cause a personal injury in the hip to grant forgiveness against one whom you have wronged. But what is very interesting is when the two sons met, the words that Jacob spoke to his brother. Listen again. No, please. If I find favor with you, says Jacob to Esau, then accept my present, all these herds and cattle, from my hand. For truly, 
to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Did you catch that? Jacob now sees the face of God in the face of his brother. Who would have thought that? When we look at the sacred stories of Scripture, they're always addressed to us as readers or hearers. It's God's love letter to us to catch our attention, to say something that will make a difference in our humdrum lives. I think there are three things that we can take from this sacred story of a fracture being fixed. Where else do we learn to be reconciled or forgiving other than from God? We may try, but our feeble efforts don't get the job done until we receive the forgiveness from God and channel it to others that we may have hurt. For you see, God alone has the power that he embeds in us having received forgiveness first from him so we can be empowered to serve others and forgive. He has the power and he did it with two pieces of wood just pounded into a hill called Skull Hill that lay just outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was on a Friday that the fracture was fixed. It was Good Friday, the day when Jesus Christ, in our place and for our sake, took all of the world's sin upon himself and suffered the consequences that we deserve. Oh, we deserve it all right. We fail to live up perfectly to God's will for us as we were designed to do. We have no way to get ourselves out of that predicament. So it takes a savior to do that. And God provided. And then through faith, he gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us in life. So that that which we hear and learn about God's graciousness toward us in Christ gets embedded in our lives and begins to express itself in the way we live. That's the first thing. Reconciliation is not easy and it's not done on the cheap. It took the very blood of the Son of God to make it happen. Second thing, we learn something about restitution. That's a big word. Jacob offered his brother herds of cattle that he had accumulated during that time that he had worked out this this double portion of the father's blessing. (laughs) But now he was willing to give back. He offered his brother restoration for what he had taken over the years. Even more, Esau, to show that he forgave his brother, said, I'm going to give you some of my land if you'd like it. And Jacob said, no thanks, I'm okay. But thanks for the offer. When I was a young boy, growing up, if I did something wrong to another person, or if I stole something, 
There was a process my parents made sure I followed at that, at that point. I had to go to the individual that I had wronged. I had to ask them face to face to forgive me for what I had done. And then I was to add to that, what would you like me to do to make it right? Restitution. In the community I grew up in, a little village in Massachusetts, it was just common parlance. Every, everybody thought that was what you do. I've noticed that in America today, especially when we see images of grab and smash, slander going on, people violent in the streets, businesses being torn apart, people being unemployed because of it, and so forth, that restitution isn't thought of in the same terms. Oh, there's insurance, I know that. But the personal intervention that takes place between the doer of wrong and the doer who got wronged doesn't seem to carry the same weight anymore. But when you look at the scriptures, you have to scratch your head and say, wait a minute. For example, in the book of Ecclesiastes, listen to what that brilliant person wrote. It's probably Solomon, King Solomon. He said, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add one-fifth of the value to it. Or again, in the New Testament, you remember that tax collector, the little fellow, Zacchaeus, short, he had to climb up in a tree to see Jesus as he came into town. He had heard all about him. Jesus looked up, he said, come on, I'm going to come to your house tonight. And Zacchaeus came down out of the tree. Now to be a tax collector in those days, I think you know, they worked for the Roman government. And they were con artists for ripping off the Jewish people, their own people. What took place that night at Zacharias's home, at Zacchaeus's home, excuse me, is something phenomenal. Zechariah, Zacchaeus, why I want to say that was from the other Sunday. Zacchaeus said, I quit my job. I want to follow you, Lord. And then he used these words. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions. And he was a chief tax collector. He made bundles. Half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. We know that Peter asked Jesus how many times you should forgive someone. It was the custom, the Jewish custom, three times. Peter said, should I do it seven times? He, was, he thought he was real generous. He doubled the three, added one more just for security. <laughs> and Jesus answered, no, 70 times seven. In other words, as often as forgiveness is needed, you give it. 
And then Jesus told a story, a parable, about a very rich man who had a servant who was deeply in debt to him. So big a debt, there was no way in the rest of his life he could have paid it off. But the master forgave the debt completely. And then we're told that same servant turned around had a fellow that owed him just a little bit of money. And when he couldn't pay up, he ordered that man to be thrown into jail. And at the end of the parable, you remember what Jesus said? He said, my father, my heavenly father, takes note of those things. And the ending is not good for that person. My friends, forgiveness and reconciliation bring peace where there's conflict. It's about letting go of the hurt, the will for vengeance and repayment. It's a matter of taking all of that mush in your heart and dropping it before the cross of Jesus where his blood shed it clean. His blood became the super glue that takes fractures and makes them whole again. This is the God, the one who created you and me, who sustains us day by day, who sent his son and sent his spirit to be with us who by grace provides the gift of forgiveness that we don't deserve, and by his mercy stops us from getting the punishment that we do deserve. Now just imagine for a moment if we in the world could see the face of God in one another, what would that be like? Amen. Now may the peace that passes all understanding be yours this day, every day of your life. Amen.